Part 12 of Ghosts and Family Legends, a volume for Christmas by Catherine Crow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 12, Legends of the Earthbound, The Old French Gentleman's Story. I spent the summer of 56 at Dieppe, a charming watering place for those who can bear an exciting air and are not very particular about what they eat. Dieppe, as travelers see it who are hurrying through to Paris, has a most unpromising aspect, with its muddy basins and third- and fourth-rate inns on the quays. But if you are not hastening from the packet to the train, which the great proportion of people do, you have only to pass up one of the short streets you will see en face when you issue from the custom-house, into which you have been introduced on landing, and you will find yourself on an esplanade of considerable extent, with a wide expanse of clear salt water before you, a fine terrace walk along the shore, and several newly erected hotels opposite the sea. Of course, there is an établissement where the usual amusements are provided, the bathing is excellent, and the company numerous, for Dieppe is the favorite watering place of the fashionable world of Paris. The beauty of the place is greatly increased by a judicious suggestion of the emperor's. I was told that when he and the empress were there in fifty-five, they complained of the absence of flowers on the esplanade. It was objected that none would grow there. However, he recommended them to try hollyhocks, china asters, and poppies. The latter are the finest I ever saw, and the brilliant and varied masses of color produce a very good effect. But they do not feed you well there. La viande est long et dieppe, as the garçon of the Hotel Royal urged when I objected to the meat which, on application of the knife, fell into strips of pack thread. The poultry is lean and bad, fish scarce, because it all goes to London or Paris, by contract, and everything dear. Nevertheless, Dieppe is a very nice place, and the surrounding country is exceedingly pretty and picturesque. Some members of the jockey club were in the Hotel Royal, living very fast indeed. They all bore very aristocratic names and titles, but not the impress of high blood. How should they? Judging from what I saw, such a course of profligate self-indulgence, unredeemed, even by good breeding, must have effaced the stamp, if it ever was there. They inhabited a pavilion in the Cour, and the luxurious repast that we constantly saw served to them gave us an awful idea of the amount of their bill. They played at cards all day, the live-long summer day and only suspended this amusement when the garçons appeared with their trays loaded with expensive wines and high-seasoned dishes. One other amusement they had, which was no less an amusement to us. They had a drag, a regular English foreign-hand. The cour of the hotel was divided from the road by iron rails, with a large gate at each extremity for carriages, so that, to an English whip, nothing would have been easier than to drive in at one of these gates, and round the sweep, and out at the other. But this the jockey club could never accomplish. When the gentlemen took the reins from the coachman, if they were in, they could not get out, and if they were out, they could not get in. 
so after a few ambitious attempts and ignominious failures they submitted to the inglorious expediency of mounting and dismounting outside the gates the french have certainly a remarkable incapacity for riding or driving which is strange as they are active men and have generally light figures the emperor is almost the only frenchman i ever saw ride well but he rides like an english gentleman there were many elegantly dressed women of all nations at dieppe but there was one who particularly attracted my attention and for whom when i afterwards heard her story i felt an extraordinary interest this was the countess adeline de givry montgirac at least so i will call her here when i first saw her she was going down to bathe attended by her maid a grave elderly person and i was so much struck by her appearance that i took the first opportunity of inquiring her name she was tall and very pale with fine straight features and an expression of countenance at once noble and melancholy her figure was so good and her bearing at once so graceful and dignified that her unusual height did not strike you till you saw her standing beside other women she was leaning on her maid's arm and stooped a little apparently from feebleness her attire was a peignoir of grey taffeta lined with blue and on her head she wore a simple capote of the same her age i judged to be about forty she lodged at the hotel royal as i did also but lived entirely in private and we only saw her there as she went in and out later in the season the duchess de b and other persons arrived from paris with whom she was acquainted and i often observed her in conversation with them on the promenade but her countenance never lost its expression of melancholy however i should have left dieppe ignorant of the singular circumstances i am about to relate but for an accident there was a veranda in the court of the hotel in which many of us preferred to breakfast rather than in the salon and the veranda not being very extensive and the candidates numerous there was often a little difficulty in securing a table one morning i had just laid my parasol on the only one i saw vacant when the garçon warned me that it was already engaged by ce monsieur indicating an old gentleman who was standing with his back to me in conversation with one of a sisterhood called sieur de la providence who was soliciting him to buy some of the lottery tickets she held in her hand they were for the loterie de bienfaisance the proceeds of which are devoted to charitable purposes there are innumerable lotteries of this sort in france authorized by the government and they seem to me to be the substitute for our magnificent private charities in england for very large sums are collected the tickets only cost a franc i believe that tirage is conducted with perfect fairness and people thus subscribe a franc for the poor with the agreeable but very remote chance of being repaid a hundred thousand fold the old gentleman turned his head on hearing my conversation with the waiter and begging i would not derange myself on his account desired that i might have the table 
grateful for such an unusual exertion of politeness, for the politeness of the modern French gentleman does not include the smallest modicum of self-sacrifice, I modestly declined and said, I would wait. He answered, By no means, and while we were engaged in this amicable contest, the waiter brought his breakfast and placed it on the table. Seeing which, he proposed that as he was denied the pleasure of making way for me, I should have my coffee placed on the other side, and we should breakfast together, an offer which I gladly accepted. He was a pleasant, garrulous old gentleman. Monsieur de Venancourt was his name, propriété à Paris, and he told me how he had lost his fortune by the revolutions, and how he lived now in a petit appartement in the rue des Écures d'Anjou, and belonged to a coterie of old ladies and gentlemen like himself, who had a petit whisk every night during the winter. While we were talking, the countess passed us on her way to the bath, and, happening to catch her eye as she crossed the court, he bowed to her, whereupon I asked him if he knew her. A little, he said, but I knew her husband well, and her mother's hotel was next to that my family formerly inhabited. She was a beautiful woman, Madame de Lignerol. Then she is dead, said I. No, he replied, she has retired from the world. She is in a convent. C'est une histoire bien triste, celle de Madame de Lignerol, et sa fille est aussi bien étrange. If it is not a secret, perhaps you will tell it to me, said I, for I saw that my new acquaintance desired nothing better. He was a famous raconteur, and I wish I could tell the story in English as well, and as dramatically, as he told it to me in French. However, I'll repeat it as faithfully as I can. Madame de Lignerolles, née Hermione de Xavier, was married early to the Marquis de Lignerolles, without any particular penchant for or against the union. The Marquis was a great deal older than herself, but it was considered a good match, for he was very rich, and his genealogy was unexceptionable. Not more so, however, than the young ladies, for the de Vries heraldic tree had apparently sprung from an acorn floated to the west by Ducalion himself. At the period of Hermione's marriage, her father, mother, and two brothers, older than herself, still lived. Her father, the Comte de Gevry, had been a younger son, and had inherited the fortune on the death of his elder brother, who was killed in a duel the day before he was to have been married to a woman he passionately loved. He died by the hand of one of his most intimate friends, with whom he had never had a word of difference before, and the subject of quarrel was a peacock but it was always remarked by the world that the eldest zions of the house of Givry were singularly unfortunate. They seldom prospered in their loves, and if they did, they were sure to die before their hopes were realized. People in general called it a destiny, others whispered that it was a curse, but the family laughed contemptuously if anyone presumed to hint such a thing in their presence, and asserted that it was merely le hasard, and as the world in these days is very much disposed to believe in le hasard, few persons sought to penetrate further into the cause of these misadventures. 
However, Hermione's elder brother, Etienne, did not escape his mauvais destin. The lady he was engaged to marry was seized with the smallpox, and from being a pretty person became a very ugly one during her illness he had sworn nothing would break his engagement and accordingly disfigured as she was he married her but he had better for both their sakes have left it alone he was disgusted and she was jealous they parted within a month after the wedding and he was soon after killed by a fall from his horse in the bois de bouillon and died leaving no issue Upon his decease, the second son, Armand, now the heir, was recalled from Prussia, whither he had gone with his regiment, but they were on the eve of a battle, and it was not consistent with his honor to leave till it was over. He was the first officer that fell in the fight, and thus the hopes of the ancient family of Givry became centered in the offspring of Hermione but Adeline, the fair object of my admiration, was the sole fruit of the marriage, and great were the lamentations of the old count and countess that the continuation of this noble stock rested on so frail a tenure, for the child was exceedingly delicate. She outgrew her strength, and for some years was supposed to be poitinière but either thanks to the wonderful care that was bestowed upon her or to an inherent good constitution she survived this trying period and grew up to marriageable years rewarding all the solicitude of her family by her charms and amiability she was not so beautiful as her mother had been and even was still but she was quite sufficiently handsome and there was so much grace in her movements and her manners and she had such a noble and pure expression of countenance a true indication of her character that adeline de lagnerolles perfections were universally admitted by the men and scarcely denied by the women insomuch that these attractions added to her lineage and fortune caused her to be looked upon as one of the most desirable matches in the kingdom her father the old marquis de lignerolles for he was constrained to adopt the latter name had died previous to this period and as her grandfather m de givry undertook the affair of her marriage numerous were the propositions he privately received and frequent the closetings and consultations on the subject in these cases the more people have the more they require and as adeline had better blood and more money than most people the family exigence in these respects was considerable and the difficulties that lay in the way of procuring a suitable alliance manifold she had reached the age of seventeen and this important point was still unsettled when she and her mother went to visit a relative of madame de lignerolles who was united to a portuguese nobleman on her marriage she had followed her husband to his own country but he was now on a mission to the french court and the paris season being over they had taken a chateau on the loire for the summer months there were other young people in the house and all sorts of amusements going on which no one seemed to enjoy at first more than adeline de Givry. But at the end of a fortnight a change began to be observable in her spirits and demeanour, which did not escape the observation of her young companions, and by their means awakened the attention of Madame de Saldagna, their hostess, 
who hinted to her cousin, Madame de Lignerolles, that Adeline was falling in love with the young Count de la Cruz. At least such was the opinion of her own daughter, Isabella, adding that if so abnormal a circumstance as a young lady choosing her own husband was to happen, she could not have fixed on a more desirable individual than Warrigas de la Cruz, a man unexceptionable in person, mind, and manners, whose genealogy might vie with that of the de Gevres themselves, and whose name was associated with distinguished deeds of arms during the Holy Wars. But this indulgent view of the case was not shared by Madame de Lignerolles. She seemed exceedingly surprised and incredulous, but when the other insisted on the probability of such a result, since the two young people had been residing for six weeks under the same roof, and pointed out to the lady that the assiduous attentions paid by de la Cruz to herself were doubtless not without an object, suggesting that that object was to gain her interest in his favor, she evinced so much displeasure and indignation that Madame de Saldagna apologized and gave up the point, saying she was very likely mistaken, and that it was a mere fancy of Isabella's. Nevertheless, these suspicions were perfectly well-founded. De la Cruz was waiting for his father's consent to make his proposals in form, and this consent was only delayed till the old gentleman had time to come to Paris and make the needful inquiries regarding fortune and family, about which he considered himself entitled to be quite as particular as the de Gevres. It was remarked that from this time Madame de Lignerolles observed her daughter with a jealous eye, and sought every means of keeping her away from the young Portuguese, added to which, as it afterwards appeared, she severely reproved Adeline for what she called the levity of her conduct. Moreover, she hastened her departure, and in a few days after the conversation with Madame de Saldagna, took her leave alleging that her presence was required by her father in Paris. To Paris, however, she did not immediately go. There was in Brittany an ancient chateau belonging to the family, which for some reason or other they very rarely visited. It was supposed because they possessed others more agreeable. At all events, whatever might be the cause, it was known that the old count had a mortal aversion to this residence, insomuch that his daughter had never been there since her infancy. When something very unpleasant was reported to have happened to her mother's eldest brother shortly before his death. Thither, however, they now travelled with all speed, accompanied only by two maids and a man." Madame de Lignerolles was a person in whom the maternal instinct had never been largely developed. She was even still at eight-and-thirty a beautiful woman, and it was generally suspected that she did not feel at all delighted at having this tall, handsome daughter to proclaim her age, and perhaps shortly make her a grandmother. But her manner to Adeline, usually more indifferent than harsh, now assumed a new character. She seemed engrossed with her own thoughts, was cold and constrained, spoke little, and when she did it was with a gravity truly portentous. They were not unexpected at Chateau Noir, for such was the ominous name of the old castle, which frowned upon them in the gloom of a dusky November evening.
But instead of the liveried servants, by whom they were accustomed to be greeted, an elderly housekeeper, a concierge, and a few rustic menials appeared to be its only inhabitants. However, they had done their best to make ready for this visit. Fires were lighted, and dinner was prepared and served, accompanied by plenty of apologies for its not being better. The evening passed in silence. They were tired, and went early to bed. The next two days Madame de Lignerolles kept her room, and Adeline strolled about the neglected grounds, occupied with her own thoughts of the future, not without wondering a little at her mother's mysterious behavior. On the third day she was summoned to the presence of Madame de Lignerolles, who received and bade her be seated with the same significant solemnity, and then proceeded to inform her that she had a most painful secret to communicate a secret that had long pressed upon her conscience, but which she could never find resolution to disclose, that lately, however, her confessor had so strongly urged her to perform this act of duty, that, with the greatest reluctance, she had resolved to obey his injunctions. Her doing so having become more imperative, from the fact of Adeline's having arrived at marriageable years, as in the event of any alliance presenting itself, honour would constrain her to speak. The dreadful secret was that Adeline was not her child, that the nurse who had had the charge of her infancy confessed on her deathbed that she had substituted her own infant for the countess's, and that the latter had subsequently died, but that she could not leave the world in peace without avowing her crime." I did not believe her, said Madame de Lignerolles, but she reminded me that my child had a mole under the left breast, which you, Adeline, have not. This cruel change was effected during our absence from France. Shortly after my confinement I was ordered to spend the winter in Italy, and the child was left to the care of my father and mother, who by that time had nearly lost her eyesight. To this circumstance, and the little notice men usually take of infants, the woman trusted to escape detection. Of course I could not discern the difference between the child I had left and the one I found. I had no suspicion, and whatever alterations I remarked I attributed to the lapse of time, though I must own that maternal instinct offered a strong confirmation of the nurse's confession. While I believed you my own offspring, I had none of those tender yearnings which I have heard other women speak of, and I often reproached myself for the want of them. However, I endeavored to do my duty by you, and no pains or expense were spared on your education, which was already nearly completed, when I became acquainted with this dreadful secret, of which, when the nurse died, I was the sole possessor." but aware of the intense grief such a disclosure would occasion my husband who was then in exceedingly bad health i determined during his lifetime to preserve silence after his death i ought to have exerted courage to speak but my mother adored you it would have killed her she is now gone and there is only your grandfather left i well know the suffering it will cause him and believe me i feel for you but my duty is plain. You will be amply provided for. 
but ere the sentence could be finished adeline who had sat like a statue listening to this harangue with wondering eyes and open lips suddenly rose and rushed out of the room that she was not madame de lignerolles daughter caused her little grief nor was she of an age very highly to appreciate the position and splendors she was losing but she thought of her grandfather whom she really loved she thought of de la cruz and her heart filled with anguish she was not pursued to her retreat the whole day she kept her chamber and madame de lignerolles kept hers on the following morning a note was handed to her from madame de lignerolles announcing that she was starting for paris to communicate this distressing intelligence to monsieur de Lievry, and desiring adeline to remain where she was under the care of madame Fertot, the housekeeper till she received further directions assuring her at the same time that everything would be done for her happiness and welfare and in due time a suitable parti be provided for her just as monsieur de venacour reached this point of his story madame de montgerat returned from bathing and if i looked at her with interest before it may be well imagined how much more she inspired now how extraordinary i said as my eyes rested on her noble countenance and majestic figure that that distinguished-looking woman is really the daughter of a good-for-nothing servant and yet i should have said if ever there was a person who bore the unmistakable impress of aristocracy it is she he nodded his head and significantly lifting his forefinger to the side of his nose said ecoutez and forthwith proceeded with his narration as follows on madame de lignerolles arrival in paris she sent for her father threw herself at his feet and with tears and lamentations disclosed this dreadful secret which she said had been making the misery of her life for the last two years but whatever distress it occasioned her it was quite evident that that of monsieur de gevry was much more severe he was wounded on all sides his pride his love of lineage his personal affection for adeline and his horror of the notoriety such an extraordinary event must naturally acquire so powerful were the two last sentiments that for a moment he even entertained the idea of accepting adeline as the heiress of gevry and concealing the whole affair from her and everybody else but to this proposition his daughter objected that the poor girl was already in possession of the truth and that it was impossible to make her a party to such a deception then said monsieur de gevry she must die there is no other expedient mais non mon père cried hermione starting from her seat evidently taken quite aback by this unexpected proposition de gevry waved his hand with a melancholy smile enfant he said do you think i intend to become an assassin god forbid and then he explained that he did not mean a real but a fictitious death for which purpose she must be removed to a foreign country under the pretence of the reappearance of pulmonary symptoms that a husband must be found for her who would bind himself to leave france forever and keep this secret under pain of forfeiting the very handsome allowance he proposed to make them 
for the safe conduct of which part of the business it would be necessary to confide their unhappy circumstances to the family physician and lawyer. In the meantime, as these arrangements could not be made in a day, it was decided that Adeline should remain where she was till all was ready for their completion. "'I shall take her out of the country myself,' he said, "'and you must accompany us. Every consideration must be shown her. She is the victim and not the criminal.' In the course of this conversation, as may be imagined, Monsieur de Gevry more than once lamented the extinction of his race. His daughter, however, on that point offered him some consolation by suggesting that she was still a young woman, and that for her father's sake, although she had never intended to marry again, she would consent to do so, provided she could meet with an unobjectionable parti. Shortly after this melancholy disclosure, de la Cruz arrived with his father in Paris, where they were so well received by Madame de Lignerolles that the old gentleman, fascinated by her beauty and manners, expressed his surprise that his son had not fallen in love with the mother instead of the daughter. However, at his son's desire, he made formal propositions for the young lady's hand, which, to the surprise of the young man, Monsieur de Levry said, was already promised, adding, however, that his granddaughter's state of health would probably retard the union, the physicians having discovered that the seeds of consumption were beginning to develop themselves in her constitution, and consequently recommended her removal to a warmer climate. In the meanwhile, the poor young girl was pining alone at the dreary old chateau, with no companion but her own maid, receiving no intelligence, and ignorant of her future fate. All she knew was that she never could be the wife of Rodriguez de la Cruz. She supposed that when he made his proposals he would be informed of the circumstances above related, and that she should never hear more of him but in this she was mistaken. About three weeks after her mother had left her, a letter from him arrived, saying that he had succeeded in discovering where she was, and that he had lost no time in writing to inform her of the ill fortune that had attended his proposals, adding that if her sentiments continued unchanged, he would come to Chateau Noir, accompanied by his own chaplain, who would unite them after which, he had no doubt, it would be easy to obtain her grandfather's forgiveness, he probably having only refused his consent because he was trammelled by a prior engagement. But this letter was addressed to Mademoiselle de Lignerolles, and it was evident from the whole tenor of it that the writer knew nothing of the change in her fortunes. Honour forbade her to take advantage of this ignorance, but the struggle threw her into agonies of grief. She passed a miserable day, and retired early to bed, where she might indulge her tears and avoid the curious eyes of her maid, who was greatly perplexed at these unusual proceedings. Sleep was far from her eyes, and her mind was busy framing the answer she had to write on the following day to de la Cruz, when she heard a knock at her chamber door. "'Come in,' she said, not doubting that it was her maid or Madame Veto. Immediately she heard the handle turn, and she saw in a mirror that was opposite the door open and a miserable haggard-looking woman enter. She was attired in rags, and she led by the hand two naked children. 
they approached the foot of the bed and the woman held out a letter as if she wished adeline to take it which she made an effort to do but a sudden horror seized her and she uttered a scream which roused her maid who slept in the adjoining apartment she was found insensible but the usual applications restored her and without telling what had happened she requested the servant to pass the rest of the night in her room the next day she felt very poorly in consequence of the horrid vision but she wrote to de la cruz such a letter as she felt her altered circumstances demanded she could not bring herself to avow that she was the daughter of robertine colette but sent him simply a cold haughty refusal which precluded all possibility of any further advances the next day she changed her room and she saw no more of the frightful apparition she had done her duty to de la cruz but she was miserable and when shortly afterwards her grandfather arrived accompanied by dr percher the family physician they found her exceedingly ill and confined to her bed this dr percher was a clever and worthy man and having been necessarily made the confidant of the painful secret it had been privately arranged between him and monsieur de Givry that he should marry the girl and that they should thereupon quit the country monsieur de g making ample provision for their future maintenance but the main thing needful was to restore her to health and in the course of his attendance upon her he learnt from her maid how she had been first attacked and then elicited from herself the cause of her alarm of course he looked upon the vision as an illusion in short the premonitory symptoms of her illness and mentioned it in that light to m de gevry but to his surprise m de g took a different view of the matter and hastening to adeline's room he made her repeat to him the exact description of what she had seen after which he started immediately for paris without explaining the motive of this sudden departure on his arrival he presented himself before his daughter and taxed her with having deceived him what her motive could be he was unable to imagine he supposed it to be pecuniary and that she did not wish to part with the large portion to be paid to adeline on her marriage but he believed that the traditionary apparition of his family would not have appeared to any one who was not a member of it and that therefore the girl who had accurately described the appearance of these figures of which the young people were always kept in entire ignorance must be actually his granddaughter madame de lignerolles persisted in her story and all she could be brought to own was that it was possible the woman colette had deceived her strong in his own opinion m de gevry returned to chateau noir dr Pechet having recommended the young lady's removal and after writing his daughter a very urgent and serious letter he started on a tour of a few weeks with adeline for the recovery of her health no answer reached him for some time but at the end of a month he received one acknowledging the cruel deception she had practised alleging as her excuse an ardent passion for rodriguez de la cruz and the wish to detach him from adeline and marry him herself but she had failed and he was on the point of marriage with a lady selected for him by his father 
the letter concluded by the announcement that she was about to retire to a convent where she should in due time take the veil Monsieur de Gevry assumed this to be a mere ebullition of shame and disappointment, but she kept her word. Mademoiselle de Lignerolles, some years later, married the Baron de Montgerat, from whom, said Monsieur de Vanacourt, I heard the story. By him she had two sons, but the constant apprehension that in the eldest will be fulfilled the mauvais destin entailed in the heirs of Gevry, Praise, it is said, on her mind and health, and is the cause of the expression of melancholy for which her fine countenance is so remarkable. Some centuries earlier, when power was irresponsible, Count Armand de Gevry, a cruel and oppressive lord of the soil, who then inhabited Chateau Noir, had put to death one of his serfs, and turned his wife and two children out of doors in inclement weather, forbidding any of his tenants to shelter or assist them. The children were without clothes, and the three poor creatures perished from cold and starvation, but leaving behind them a terrible retribution in the form of a curse pronounced by the wretched woman's lips in her dying agonies, which, strange to say, seems to have been pretty literally fulfilled. When they were nearly at the last extremity, some good Christian had had the courage to write a pathetic letter for her, which, however, it was necessary she should deliver herself, as no one else durst do it. She watched her opportunity, concealed herself in the park, and waylaid the Count as he returned one day from shooting. But instead of taking the letter, he set his dogs upon her, who would have torn her to pieces but for the courageous interference of one of his followers. The curse ran that never should the heir of Gevry prosper till one of them took the letter, and that the last scion of the house should renier le roi et se voyer à l'enfer. Since that it was said that no eldest son or daughter of the house of Gevry had lived and prospered, whilst the letter in some way or other had been offered to every one of them but as the cadets of the family lived and married and prospered like other people they did not choose to believe in the story at least whatever their secret thoughts on the subject may have been they publicly threw ridicule on the tradition whenever it was alluded to but monsieur de gevry had sufficient faith in it to believe that if adeline had been the daughter of robertine collet she would never have been visited by the ghost of Madeleine Dog and her children. End of part twelve.